Well, we kick off our series in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, I'm excited for this series. We're talking about building the kingdom. How many of you have ever started a project uh, that you, well, let me back up here. How many of you have ever um, put off a project that you knew you should have done? Maybe it was a school project, homework, research paper. Uh, Maybe it was something around the house. You got that um, bedroom that needs painted or the kitchen or the bathroom that needs remodeled. Anyone ever been a little bit lazy, put off anything like that? A couple of you? All right. Well, (laughs) I can tell you guys are lively. This is going to be good. I'll just have to get a little more excited, a little more animated. What are some of the reasons that people put things like that off? Throw out a few reasons. Why do people put things off, big projects? Yeah. Yeah. Super messy, and it always goes further than you think it will. It'll take you further than you than you wanted it to go, for sure. What else? Why do people put things off? Yeah, there's better things to do, right? Gosh, there's, you think about it. There's a million things we could do with our time, for sure. Some of us, we're, we're just lazy, right? Some of us, we count the cost, and we're like, yeah, I don't know that it's worth it. Um, sometimes, we just don't know how to do it. We plan a little bit and we strategize, but we think, I'm not sure. Like right now I got a deck that I'm uh, I'm working on and I'm thinking, I I don't know if I know fully how to do this. Like I might screw this up. But over the years I've found, especially when it comes to home projects, um, a tactic in recognizing that taking that first step is often the hardest. Because once you take that first step, then you can go all the way in. Uh, At least in my household, that's how we do it. And so I got the strategy that I've developed. Now, Tara, she doesn't like it as much as me, but I call this strategy spontaneous demolition because uh, we'll have a project planned out and we will um, count the cost and we'll uh, strategize a little bit. But I know in order for us to get going, I just need to just get up and start tearing things apart. If I paint that wall a little bit that needs painted um, and it looks nasty now because I, I, I marked it up, um, we're going to finish painting that thing. If um, Like this past winter, uh, Tara and I talked about taking a wall out in the kitchen, but there was cabinets attached to it. We knew we were going to have to move a uh, water line and some electrical stuff, and then you got to repair your ceiling if you take out a wall, and then you got to repair your floor, and it was linoleum, and so that meant we had to replace the floor and all these things. And I thought, I don't know if I'm going to do this. So one day she was at a family gathering and I was at some speaking engagement, I think in Hutchinson, but mine got done early. And so I came home and I just decided randomly, I said, I'm just going to rip the wall out. And then once it, once it gets started, it started. And so I tore that wall out and she came home and she's like, oh my gosh, what did you do? And she knew it's on. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. Well, that's how you and I start projects. Tonight, we're going to see how Nehemiah, who is an amazing project coordinator, amazing project um, guy himself, he was a wall builder, starts this project. You see, we're going to talk about uh, Nehemiah, who was known, obviously, for building a wall, rebuilding part of the city of Jerusalem. But more than that, he was a people builder. And we see a parallel between a physical kingdom being built in Nehemiah and a spiritual kingdom being built right now. Matter of fact, in First 
Peter verses, chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, uh, Peter says that you and I are living stones. If we are in Christ, we are living stones being built up into a spiritual house. And Jesus is the cornerstone of that house. We want the kingdom of God to expand. Every time people listen to the word of God, hear the word of God, obey the word of God, repent from sin, receive the gospel, the kingdom of God expands. And as disciple makers, we want to go out there and help people to know the Lord. And so whether it's someone who's never heard the gospel and you share the gospel, with them. That's a disciple maker. If it's someone who follows Jesus, but you help them in the journey, that's a disciple maker. It's big things like preaching the gospel. It's little things like just encouraging them with a note. So many parts to disciple making, but we want to be building the kingdom of God. And when I uh, tell you about my projects at home and my spontaneous uh, demo, I find it's not too much different than what we're going to see tonight with Nehemiah. Because he had some spontaneous demo of the heart. Sometimes you just got to get wrecked for God's kingdom. You got to get wrecked for uh, people um, outside of your bubble. People in our city that maybe you don't have a clue about. Maybe you've heard that they exist, but you've never been to that side of town. People who maybe you've tried to avoid, but you know people are hurting, people are broken, and they need the gospel. And you can stay in your Christian bubble for a long, 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 long time and not realize all the brokenness around you. And so tonight's just one of those nights. This is how it starts. If you want to switch kingdoms from focusing on yourself to the Lord's kingdom, um, you got to get wrecked. And so, Nehemiah, he's going to show us uh, how to be part of the greatest project on earth, the building of God's kingdom. And we're going to jump in and see what he has to show us. So we're just going to walk through verses 1 through 4a. Most of the uh, weeks in this series, we're going to cover uh, close to a whole chapter. And, but we're going to kick off with just a few verses because we've got some context, some background stuff to talk about as well. So let's read the passage. Of course, we're in the ESV. If you've got a Bible, feel free to open it up. Nehemiah 1, chapters, or excuse me, verses 1 through 4a. So the first part of 4a. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakali. Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year. Normally they say the 20th year of a certain king. Um, That would be Artaxerxes, uh, the king of Persia at this point. We'll explain some of that. As I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. All right, let's jump in. First thing in verse 1, we're going to talk about who Nehemiah is. It says, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel. So who is Nehemiah? Got to know some of that context to know um, what the word of God means. So we're going to look at these seven things. His role in the Bible, who the author was, the literary genre, the date, the themes, the outline, and a little bit about Nehemiah himself. So let's rock and roll through this. 
The first one is the role in the Bible. So the Old Testament made up of 39 books, um, covers obviously thousands of years. Most of the events outside of Genesis happen from 2000 BC to 400 BC. Of course, most of it's in the Middle East. Um, And what we see is that Nehemiah was probably the last events chronologically recorded in the Old Testament before there was a 400-year period of silence. Now, this is what we call the intertestamental period. This was prophesied in the Old Testament that there would be a time of silence, a 400-year period, before then Jesus came and the New Testament starts. And so, um, when you go uh, to your Christmas Eve service or whatever this next year and you start reading those passages at the beginning of Matthew and, and Luke about the birth of Jesus, just remember, um, they were waiting 400 years, 400 years for the next move of God in the way that, um, of course, they saw. And so 400 years prior to that, though, this is what was going on in Jerusalem. There was a broken down uh, city. And it needed to be restored, and God's people rallied around Nehemiah to do that. Yes, sir. Yeah, there. Yeah, many would say there is, but I mean, you could take that as far as you want. I don't know. There's 400 years of silence, 400 years of slavery, um, but 400 obviously is significant to some degree, for sure. For sure. Now, the role, big picture in the Bible, good question. The role, big picture in the Bible is that the exiles were hopeless and they needed assurance of God's fulfillment of his promises. So if you've ever been in that place where you thought, gosh, I just need to know that God's promises are not only true, but that God's going to fulfill them because I feel like I'm in a dry season right now. Well, this was a very dry season. And, and Nehemiah shows that God is faithful, that the people of God aren't always faithful, but God is always faithful. And, and I'll say one more thing about its role in the Bible. Way back in the day, matter of fact, before 185 AD, AD 185, um, the early manuscripts of Nehemiah showed it as one book with another book in the Old Testament. So there were two books combined, and then they were separated. Does anyone know what that sister or brother book would be, if there's another book. Ezra. Eve, you're doing good. You got it. Ezra, why would Ezra be kind of a sister book to Nehemiah? Does anyone know? Yeah. Exactly. So Ezra is essentially a priest who's coming to do some of the spiritual work, and Nehemiah is the builder. He's a father of, um, uh, of he, he's a primary, um, he's one of the heads of households in Israel, and he's stepping up in this leadership uh, position, but Ezra did the same thing. And, and so they kind of tag team this, um, and we'll talk a little bit more about Ezra here in a second. The author of the book of Nehemiah, uh, is both Nehemiah and probably Ezra. Can't guarantee that it was Ezra, but here's what we understand. If you read in both Ezra and Nehemiah, you will see part of both books are written in the first person. In Nehemiah, it's 13 chapters long, and the first seven chapters are written in the first person. Um, Nehemiah says, I did this in my own hand, and then chapters 11 and 12 as well. We call it the Nehemiah Memoirs, um, where he writes in his own pen, Um, but 
there's obviously some of Nehemiah that was written by someone else. Many believe that Ezra uh, wrote Ezra and Nehemiah, and so they would have done that, uh, or Ezra, he would have done that, um, obviously, years after all of this actually took place. If it wasn't Ezra, then we're unsure as to who it was. Literary genre, lots of genres, right? Apocalyptic um, stuff, there's poetry, there's historical books, there's the law, there's uh, wisdom literature, lots of stuff in the Bible. The literary genre was a historical narrative, and a couple of the ways that, that you'll see that is not only does it just naturally show you this chain of events that takes place, and it's just a narrative, right? But um, you'll see lots of lists. There's a whole bunch of lists, and you'll see letters. Well, this letter was written to the king in Persia, and then written back over here to the governor, and back and forth. Um, you'll see both of those. Date. Um, Nehemiah came to Jerusalem around 445 BC. This is about 13 years after Ezra. So there were several um, there were several returns from exile because the people of Israel had gone and been scattered out of Jerusalem. Let me give you the quick rundown on this. I'm gonna I try Tara and I do this at home, and it always goes way longer than I think. And she says, "Stop right there," um, because I I go on. Let me let me try to sum this up for you. Um, okay, so. In the Old Testament, there is, um, there's some books that chronologically tell you uh, how things are going from roughly like, say, 1100 B.C. to 400 B.C. So some of those books are First uh, and Second um, Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. And you can see, oh, this king reigned for 20 years, and then this one for 60, and then this one for 20, and then it goes on and on and on. At the same time, there were um, prophets there were other books of the Bible that were chronologically happening at the same time. So, for example, um, while this is being written, there's um, Malachi, there's Zechariah, there's Haggai. Those three prophets, those minor prophets, are uh, in their ministry right now. But um, to give you kind of a, a snapshot of this whole exile and um, captivity thing and what's going on. So you've got... Um, the kings of Israel, all right, 12 tribes of Israel, all living in the Middle East there, and Jerusalem is kind of the, the, the home um, of all of it. You've got um, King Saul around 1100 BC. He becomes the king, and then David becomes the king. And then David's son Solomon becomes the king. And that's about a 120-year period from start to finish, Saul to Solomon. Solomon, even though the wisest dude there was, he had a son who was kind of wicked. And he had a couple guys, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, who divided the kingdom. And so Israel has never been uh, essentially, like it was originated, one nation since. They've been a nation since the 1940s, but they have uh, the 12 tribes that we talk about in the Old Testament. They were divided to the northern and the southern. Southern was uh, Benjamin and Judah. They were in Jerusalem, and they were just two tribes. The northern tribes were 10 tribes. So when you read in First and Second Kings and Chronicles about, well, this king did this, and he was wicked, and then this king reigned for six years, and he was wicked, and when a just know, when it talks about the northern tribes, it'll just say the northern tribes or northern Israel, and it's those 10 tribes. They had about 20 kings from 930 B.C. Uh, when the kingdom got divided to 722 B.C. They never had a good king. Northern Israel, they were all wicked. When you read in um, like the Gospels about uh, you know Samaria and how Samaria was wicked and nasty, it's because it was those 10 tribes who... 
finally, in 722, was beat up and captured by the Assyrians. The Assyrians are the people that Jonah went to go preach the um, word of God to. The Assyrians came, wiped out the ten tribes. Eventually, they came back in these returns from exile, but they had intermarried so much that they were basically a mutt of a people. That's why Samaria has such a bad name, is because ten tribes of Israel were genetically all messed up after that. Okay, so from 722 and 10 tribes wiped out, you got two tribes of Israel left. And you will see this this uh, word <clears throat> remnant over and over in the Old Testament. It's about this group of Israelites that God had kept for himself, that the lineage of Jesus is ultimately going through, and he has always kept a remnant, and, and there will be a remnant through the end of times. So long story short, 722, Assyrians beat them up, 586, then the uh, temple in Jerusalem is destroyed. And the last two tribes uh, there in Judah, they are taken into captivity by the Babylonians. Babylonians are reigning for a while. The Persians beat them up. The Persians, though, are the ones that are in charge now. So we're in Nehemiah. 70 years have passed that they were in exile, lots of exiles, but the people are starting to come back into Jerusalem, start to come back into um, the promised land. And so that hopefully, I know that's a bunch of info, gives you a little bit of an idea of what's happening here in Nehemiah. Some of you like that kind of information. Some of you, maybe you just got a nice little nap. Um, But it's good. If you start to piece some of this together, the Bible will take on a whole new light for you. You'll, you'll start to see, oh, gosh, this makes sense. Um, yeah, I, I remember when the light started to come on for me as I studied it, I realized, whoa, a little bit of study goes a long way when it comes to understanding when and what was happening. Themes. So there's a few themes that are important for us to mention because you'll see these throughout Nehemiah. Number one, restoration. On the little picture, he comes to restore Israel, in the sense that he's repairing uh, Jerusalem. But on the big picture, it's restoring the covenant community of the Israelites in Jerusalem. And big, big, big picture, ultimately it points to Jesus coming to restore us 400 years later. Remember, this is all about restoration, and then there's that period of silence. And then there's a big restoration. That's Jesus. That's good news, right? Amen. Uh, number two, leadership. This is what you normally see people preach on Nehemiah. How many of you have been through a Nehemiah series before and it had something to do with leadership, right? Because he's an awesome leader. He loves the word of God. He loves prayer. He has a bunch of stuff that we can take and say, yeah, we need that. But it's not just an awesome leader. There's so much more to Nehemiah, and I don't want to just limit that. And number three, um, again, it's about God's faithfulness in fulfilling his promises. God's people have constantly been unfaithful, but God has always been faithful, and we need to remember that. And this is what the whole book of Nehemiah is ultimately about. Now, the outline of this book, what do the 13 chapters look like? Um, the first seven chapters are what we can, again, call Nehemiah's memoirs. They're written in first person, and they're about him going to rebuild the city. But then chapters 8 through 13 are a whole nother kind of special, and they're about rebuilding the community. So one is about rebuilding walls. One is about rebuilding people. And those are the two big splits within this book. Um, and then you got Nehemiah himself. So Uh, A little bit about Nehemiah. His name means the Lord comforts. Makes sense that he would use him to come and comfort the people. He was known as an energetic and strategic leader. He was part of the Jewish diaspora or those who had been cast into captivity. And slowly the exiles were coming back. Again, Ezra led one group of those captives back 13 years before this. And now, and that's what we're talking about tonight. Now, 
uh, Nehemiah asks, how are the people are doing? And he is heartbroken because he thought things were going better than they were. And now he's about to lead a whole nother group um, back in and say, let's take charge of our city again. He, this is important. This is really important. <clears throat> okay, we're going to, going to speed up a little bit. Um, here's the thing. Although we feel bad for him because we say, you guys were all cast out of the promised land. So your life must be horrible. Some of them ended up having better lives taken over by the Babylonians. And then, of course, the Persians who took over the Babylonians the, than they ever had in Jerusalem. Matter of fact, Nehemiah, we don't know what his life was like or when he was born exactly, um, but he is the cupbearer to the king. That's not a bad gig. Uh, you, you're going you're gonna to be in a position where you are not only hanging out with the coolest of cool people, but you're getting the best food, and you have a position that as long as you do exactly what you're supposed to, um, you could coast. Like, that's a good job. That's the kind of job that you say, ooh, you got that job? There's only one of those. Um, and he's got that. So he's got a cushy life, and he has no reason, <clears throat> no reason to mess it up. Because you say, why do we need to know some of this background? Because Nehemiah, if it's just preached to us like it, you know, if we just read the verses and preach it, you'll think, well, he was a dude waiting to do something amazing for God. God created him to be a leader, and he was waiting for this time, and it was awesome. But what you need to know is he was sitting in a wealthy, rich place. It says that he was in Susa, the citadel. The citadel was important because this was where the king of Persia would go for their winter residence. So this would be the equivalent of um, one of you guys being a wealthy person in town who um, uh, has a cushy job and just happens to tell us as it's like November or December of next year, I'm going to go to Florida for a few months and just hang out. Um, and we're like, wow, you've got, an, you've got a good stinking life. That's Nehemiah. He has no reason to get down and dirty unless the God of the universe gets a hold of his heart. So with that as the background, he jumped into a mess that he could have ignored. That's who Nehemiah is. That's who God is calling you and I to be. So let's continue on. Verse 2. That's a lot in verse 1. Verse 2. He says that Han and I, one of my brothers, we don't know if it was an actual brother or just a brother of the faith, so to speak, um, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the exiles, excuse me, concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. The second thing we see is you need to question your concern. So if you want your heart wrecked, if you want a spontaneous demolition, if you want to get serious about God's kingdom, you probably need to question your concern. What do I mean? He says twice that he asked them concerning two people, two groups. Number one, the Jews. And number two, Jerusalem. So his people and then his homeland. But again, he'd probably lived most, if not all of his life in this Persian province tons of miles east of his homeland. And he doesn't probably have any reason. Like, remember, there's been a bunch of exiles back to Jerusalem before him. He's on the tail end. Why in the world would he want to get involved with something that he's got it he's better there? He's got it better. Some of us, we like to have that, like, um, mentality where, well, if I just don't ask questions... <laughs> 
then my heart won't break. I won't click on that video because I know it's going to make me cry. I don't want to hear about some of the junk that's going on because it's going to make me want to move. And so we just start to push those things away. But he asked them questions. We've got to have a global concern. We've got to have a a concern that's not natural, one that's for people, one that's for God's kingdom. And that means you're going to have to go out of your way. He asked them. He asked them. So he didn't wait and say, you know what, I'm just going to let them. If they want to tell me what's going on, they can tell me. No, he asked them. You ever had um, an encounter with an old friend and you were having some small talk, but you hadn't seen them in a while and you just were so antsy. Maybe it was on the phone or whether it's face-to-face. You were just antsy to ask them about people, like that old college roommate or that high school friend where you're like, man, I haven't seen you in 15 years. How have you been? And they tell you how they've been. And they're like, oh, what about Joe? What? I haven't seen him in like 30 years. What, what is he doing? Oh, he moved to New York. New York, he was a country boy. That is crazy. And what about Sue? What's she doing? Well, she was married like seven times and then divorced seven times. And I don't know what's going on now. Really? She was a nun. That's crazy. What is going on? And you start to hear about what is going on. And you're just like, wow, why? Because you have concern for him. You have concern for him. We've all been there. You see, we talk about what we love. And that means when you look at some of our conversations and the lack of kingdom conversations, or maybe God's kingdom conversations, and how much we talk about ourselves and our own lives and the self-centeredness that many of us have, we should probably be concerned about what we're concerned about. Some of us, we're just not concerned. And so there's a perpetual tension because we say, I want to love God. I want to dig into God's word, but I live my life primarily concerned about me and my family. And so you build up this evangelical safety and comfort and security, believing that is the the, the American version of the gospel, and yet everything you read in Scripture is telling you to break out of that mold for the sake of the people around you. And the two are at odds together. What are you most concerned with? Look at your life. Of course, our concern comes from our desires. Our desires come from our heart. So where's your heart? We've talked about this in the past, but uh, just for fun, let's trace some of the things that we know show your heart. Where, where's, your, um, where's your money at? You look at your budget. How much of your money do you spend on yourself compared to God and his kingdom and other people? Do you allow room in your budget to... Um, spend on God and his kingdom. You say, well, I got so many things to to spend my money on. I got debt. Really? Who got you into debt? Well, I did, but I had to go to school. Why? So you could build your kingdom. Like you just trace it back and you'll find that even your debt, everything in many cases is pretty selfish. But who says we have to live that way? Like you can choose to live under your means, not just within them, so that you can bless other people. That's a crazy thought for most of us in America because we are taught from an early age, live outside of your means. That's why so many of us are in debt long before we've even started our careers or our lives out in the real world. And then we spend the rest of our lives trying to catch up what we chose for ourselves, knowing we can't ever hardly pay that off. And then at the end of life, we trick ourselves into thinking we'll now spend money on what really matters, other people and God's kingdom. And he says, but your life is almost over. You spent the whole thing on yourself. This is a fun exercise, isn't it? Look at maybe your energy. 
Where's your energy at? You say, I don't have any energy. Well, you can skip that one. (laughs) But where's your schedule? You look at the next week of your life. How much of your time is spent focused on you? How much of your time is spent? Listen, we have, Tara loves this one too. Um, We talk in our home sometimes about the idol of nothingness, right? And how we all want to spend our time essentially on on doing nothing. What I mean by that is, uh, how many of you want today to be over with? Like, you're you're like, well, gosh, how much more is he going to preach because I want to go home? Why do you want to go home? Well, so that I can eat and I can rest a little bit. Why do you want to eat and rest? So that I can do nothing. (laughs) So I can do nothing. Uh, And then you say, um, how many of you would want this week to be over with, like really soon? Yeah, it's only Wednesday. Oh, just get through Thursday and Friday. Why? So then I don't have to work. Why? So that I can be home. Why? So that I can do nothing. (laughs) You say, how many of you want your careers to be over with? You want to retire. Retirement sounds wonderful. Why? So that I don't have to work anymore. Why? So that I can do what I want with my time. And so what are you going to do with your time? So that I can choose to do nothing. Like ultimately, we're all working. If we really got down to it, so many of us are working to get to a place in life where we can do nothing where we at least have the freedom to be able to just do nothing. Talk about a crazy, deceitful lie that we all just let harbor in our hearts and most don't even know we have. But we're just working to get out of the work. This is why this is so against the grain. You've got to be concerned about God's kingdom. That's the beautiful freedom and both commission of the gospel to not be self-centered. You can't be self-centered and gospel-centered at the same time. It's like yawning and sneezing. Try it. It just doesn't work very well. You say, well, you don't understand because I'm in a time right now. My life is hard right now. I'm in a time of uh, a little bit of self-discovery and just some healing and some repair going on where I need to focus on myself and my own life. Really, you want your life to be better? Yeah, I want my life to be better. What did Jesus say about having a better life? He said, whoever wants to gain his life must lose it. So if you want to focus on a better life, it means you need to not focus on yourself. You need to focus on him and his kingdom and submit to him. This is contrary to what the world teaches. This is completely against what is normal. Your your life and my life will ultimately go where our desires drive it. We do what we care about. We're concerned with what we care about. And that's why the Bible says we need a new heart. That's why if you come and you hear a million sermons, but you don't ever bow a knee to Jesus, you will ultimately have just some twisted version of self-centeredness that changes over time, but is still self-centered. To be gospel-centered, you have to love Jesus more than yourself. You have to love people and humble yourself and exalt them more than you want to exalt yourself. It's an upside-down kingdom. And the reason it's so hard, it's because you've never done it before. you never experienced it before. But this is what the gospel shows us. Jesus did this in coming to earth for us, and we do this by laying our lives down for him. Well, there's still a few of you who say, I, I question my concern, but can't you, to some degree, have a new heart and still not be concerned? Because if you're here tonight and you're thinking to yourself, I'm not terribly concerned. Like I am concerned, but I'm not like terribly concerned about this city and the people in it. But I think I love Jesus. I think I follow Jesus. Well, here's the thing. You can get a new heart, but in order for it to grow, you need to change your lifestyle. Any doctor would tell you that. Any doctor would tell you that. So you could technically be sitting in a hospital bed, 
just after heart surgery with a new heart. But if you want to actually walk in that thing, you're going to have to change the way you live. Let me give you an example. I got a friend, um, a good friend, who was part of one of the church plants that we had. And at first he came in pretty self-centered. He was there for himself and he questioned things and he was fighting with God and whatnot. And then we started to disciple him a bit and he started to, to learn about the Lord. And then he gave his life to the Lord. And then we really started to disciple him more and more and more. And um, I remember he would hear me tell stories about the city we were in. And it was a rough city. There was murder, there was suicide, there was uh, crime all the time. It was just a nasty, rough part of the country. And yet, the people were beautiful in, their, in the fact that they um, were still created, obviously, in the image of God. And so we wanted to reach them. And I remember he, he pulled me aside one time, and he was like, Ryan, what are you talking about? I have lived here my whole life. You've only been here like two years. And the stories you're telling me, I've never experienced them. So either you're lying or, or what? See, he lived a couple miles outside of town. He worked in another town. And he had a bubble that he didn't realize. But I applaud him in this. He didn't just stop and say, well, those are some crazy stories, even though I don't ever see him or hear about that kind of life. No, he asked questions. And we talked. And he got to know his city, a different side of his city. This past weekend, he preached his first sermon. I'm proud of him. I see God doing amazing things in him. Um, but he was in shock when he realized the state of his people. And he asked questions. Some of us, um, we need to recognize if we're going to switch kingdom focus. We need to switch kingdom conversations. We need to stop talking about ourselves so much. We need to start asking questions about our city, about people we're unfamiliar with, about people outside of our bubble. And then we need to start walking towards those people. But you got to know where they are first. Verse three says, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived, remember the word remnant, it's just those Jew, Jewish people who were left over there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Third thing we see is you've got to recognize the problem. So you've got to question your concern, be concerned about what you're concerned about, but then you've got to recognize the problem. So he says that the wall of Jerusalem, now there were lots of um, different gates and parts of the wall, but keep in mind, Jerusalem was always up. So you ever hear in the Bible say they went up to Jerusalem. Doesn't matter if it was north or south. It was always up because it was high altitude. And in that day, um, they would have um, cities built to some degree like fortresses. Um, there's a reason why Jericho looked like Jericho, right? Um, and Israel was the same way where there are big walls stopping people from coming in because you can get ransacked, you can get taken over. And so as a primary defense mechanism, you needed big walls. And so when it says that they had great trouble and shame, it was because they had rebuilt the temple of God and this was God's city. And yet at the same time, still vulnerable and almost a mocking, shameful situation to the nations around them because they could have been ransacked at any time. And things have been destroyed by fire, not only in 586 BC when the Babylonians came in and tore the city apart, but there had been um, minor 
um, invasions since then that had kept the, the city down. And they had exiles going back trying to rebuild it, but they couldn't fix it. They couldn't fix it. The walls were broken down. So what? So what does this tell us the problem is? Well, number one, that Jerusalem obviously needs help. The people there need help. Number two, you say, let's go deeper. Jerusalem was God's city. This is where God's presence literally was in the temple. And so it's not just any ordinary city. It's a city that needs um, to be saved. You say, let's go deeper than that. Well, it, it teaches you that people obviously can't fix themselves or even their own situation because there were plenty of exiles who were already there and they had years and dozens of years to get this right. And they still saw their city torn apart. And you say, let's take it even deeper. This is God's city where God dwells and it is torn apart. God, just like he did the first time, could have had everyone rally together to do this and fix the temple, build the temple. But God's inviting you and I into the process. He's inviting us humans into the process of building his temple. Of course, we're talking about a spiritual temple now. There it was a physical temple. Where you say, this is God's city, can't he do it himself? Well, God's calling his people to stand up and be his people. See, we need Jesus. We're broken. That's the problem. And God not only invites us to find rest and salvation in Jesus, but to be disciple makers so that other people in their brokenness can find healing in Christ. The world obviously has a sin problem. But I think the church has a response problem. We have an engagement problem. We are way too stinking comfortable. And I applaud many of um, the believers, even in this church, who engage in disciple making. But even in that, how many of, of the people that we pour into and help follow Jesus are within our comfort zone? People that we would naturally come in contact with, that we would see at Bible study, that we would see on Sunday mornings, that have affinity with us. They're about our age, going through the season we're going through, with the same skin color we have, the same health conditions we have, and, and they're comfortable people to be around and to pour into. And that's good because those people have to be reached. And that's part of why God brought us together to be the church. But there's still more people. I look at even the demographics of the city and I, I see 12 to, depending on illegal versus legal, 20% of our city being Hispanic. Does our church look like 12 to 20% Hispanic? Or does it look like lower to middle, middle class white people who mostly have in common everything. You say, that's not necessarily the end of the world, right? We've got to reach each other. But are we as a church comfortable? Are we staying and, and ignoring entire groups of people in our own city? You watch the news and you'll see the world is broken, but watch your response and you'll see how broken you are. It's easy to say, I see the brokenness out there, but watch your response. You'll see the brokenness in here. Because you'll justify. You'll talk yourself out of it. You'll say, I'm, I got too much going on. I don't even know what I would say to them or he or she. But we're good news people with a good news message. <clears throat> got to take it to them. 
It wasn't too long ago we um <clears throat> we went to a um football game. Any of you guys been to Salina Liberty, the little indoor football things? I know you guys have. I think you live there. But um no, you got they got three little boys and so that that does it. Um we went for the first time probably like a month ago and it was fun, you know, chaotic, right? Like I've I'm 33 but I'm an old man at heart and so just having loud music constantly made me Maybe <laughs> struggled with it, but it was good. Silas was running around. He was crazy, and we tried to go catch footballs when they would kick him into the net, and we just had a good time, and he got his soda pop, and he drank it all in like 3.7 seconds, and then we had to go to the bathroom 400 times after that, and, you know, the whole thing that you do at football games with little kids, and he'd never been to a football game, and so it was exciting, and I could tell he was pumped the whole time, but then it's, it was a long game, and it was the third quarter, and I could tell he was ready to crash. And I thought, uh-oh, this is going to go from super fun to super horrible real quick. And so um, we said, buddy, we got to go. And he threw a fit. He was crying, and he didn't like it. But then once we got out of the loud craziness and we were walking down the hallway, um, he started to say, I want to go back in. I want to go back in. And we're like, dude, you got to go to bed. This is not good at all. And we got in the car, and things kind of calmed down, and he was able to gather his thoughts. And so you know that time as a family where you're like, okay, well, this is the drive home. Things are calming down a little bit and you're excited um, because you got some family time and you could enjoy what you just did. And so we asked him, buddy, that was fun, wasn't it? Um, What did you like the most? And real silent um, and just stoic in the backseat, I saw him in the rearview mirror and he said, I didn't like anything. Everything was boring. And then we said, "Ah, that's not true. You were having a really good time. It was so exciting right? And he he said, nothing was exciting. I never want to go back there again. Like just like depressing. Like, and he, you guys know me. So picture my offspring. I mean, he just had a way of being depressing. That was just depressing uh, for the depressed people. It was just super, super just, yeah. You're like, buddy, that is horrible. We had to talk to him about being grateful and he, it was bad. He had an opportunity to share good news, to share the excitement of everything he just did. That's what it's like, though, for us to come and hear the gospel, to receive the gospel, to be pumped that Jesus saves sinners. This is amazing news. And then how many of us, by our cynical, critical, worn-out, bad attitudes, stop the spread of the good news? Because we've watched the news. We've heard all of the brokenness. We've tried to jump in because a preacher told us to 5, 10, 20 years ago and we helped someone, we gave them some money, but then they spent that money on something they shouldn't have spent it on and then they said something that they shouldn't have and we went back and forth on it and we realized, you know what? Not going to do that again and we become a little hard-hearted. We bow out of disciple-making. What a shame. Because the good news is still good news. We're still saved. Jesus is still saving people. And the most exciting part, in my opinion, of following Christ is being in tune with his Holy Spirit and being on mission. What an adventure it is to follow Jesus. And if you bow out of that, you're bowing out of the majority of the excitement you will experience on earth in Christ. You don't want to be a part of a kingdom that's expanding that you don't really want to expand. Because you're going to be miserable seeing other people on the front lines of ministry knowing you should be there, but you say no. And you harden your heart and you build walls. And you maybe don't even say it verbally, but you do internally. 
and it stops you from doing something amazing for the kingdom of God. You got to recognize the problem is out there, but the problem might also be in here. The walls are broken down out there, but maybe the walls need to be broken down in here. That's good preaching. You guys should say amen or something. All right, one last one. We'll get you out of here. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4a. So that's the first part of the verse. It says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. The last thing we see is you got to let the brokenness break your heart. So you got to be concerned. You got to question your concern. You got to recognize the problem. The problem is sin. But the problem is the sin out there and in our own hearts. And you got to let the brokenness break your heart. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. There is a process of uh, absorbing the information of the brokenness of our society and sitting in that for a little bit and just letting yourself weep, letting yourself break for the things that break the heart of God. You got to let yourself sit in that process. The proper response to hearing of brokenness isn't cynical, bad attitude saying, well, they deserve that, or look, that's what, this, uh, that's what the liberals get, or that's what the conservatives do, and making it political, but just seeing sin and brokenness and saying, that stinks, that breaks my heart, and to have a soft heart, the one that Ezekiel 36 promises in the new covenant, that we can re- place our hard heart for a soft heart that's the heart christ gives us a spiritual heart a heart that only comes from being born again in christ one that hears the bad news and lets it collide with the good news and it causes turmoil in our own hearts but we like to be tough guys we like to to watch john wayne movies we like to look at weeping as weakness and that doesn't make us tough that makes us hard-hearted It doesn't make us tough. It makes us hard-hearted. I don't want to see, I don't want to be part of a church that looks like they have it all together. People that that look like they don't have any weakness because they don't show emotion. Jesus wept. We know that. I want people who are broken for the city. I want people who recognize even their own sin, but they are fighting to rest in Christ and they are fighting to serve with Christ. Because there is incredible need. We're not tough. We're hard-hearted. This might be why some of us don't watch the news anymore, but it might be why some of us don't make disciples either. See, those who do something, do something because they're compelled to do something. And those who do something and are compelled to do something, do it because they feel something. Are you letting yourself feel the pain of their brokenness. That's the first part of what we call incarnational ministry, putting yourself in someone else's shoes, feeling their brokenness. This is why 2,000 years ago, when Jesus came on earth, he, he didn't just live and die and be raised again, but he came and he showed that he experienced the pain that you and I do. What kind of a God does that? Only our God. Every other make-believe God out there Every false religion is going to tell you, get out of your junk, try harder, work harder. There is some euphoric experience you can have that this God is sitting in and you can jump high enough to get there if you just work a little harder. 
But our God says, I know your pain and I'm coming down in the midst of it. And that's not just theological mumbo jumbo. That's the way we make disciples. We see people's pain and we jump into the mess. Not to sit in their sin, but to give them the good news and walk with them out of it in repentance. You've got to feel something. A couple of weeks ago, Tara, she said she wasn't feeling very good. And I kind of ignored it the first day or two. And I'll just be honest, she's probably like way tougher than me. And I'm not just saying that because she's sitting in the back of the room like, I've just come to that reality. Um, and so I thought, well, you know what, she'll be all right. Then the next day, she's like, I don't feel good. Yeah, you'll be all right. Like three or four days of like body aches and pain and I just still thought, eh, you'll be all right. A couple days passed. She started to get better. Lasted like a week. And then I, last Tuesday night, started to come down with something very similar. This sounds familiar, I thought. Body aches, sore throat. I think I got what she got. And the next morning, last Wednesday, I woke up and I was out. Like I was just on my back. I was feeling so bad. I didn't get out of bed. She took the kids and she went and did preschool at uh, someone else's house and she did her thing. And I'm just laying in bed thinking, don't leave me. Like, this is it. This is how it's going to end. I'm going to die. And when she came home that night and asked me how I was doing, one of the first things I said to her was, I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry that I ignored you. This feels horrible. And she just kind of looked at me like, yeah, you're an idiot. I love you. I love you, but this serves you right. You got to feel what other people feel. Some of us are living our lives trying to protect ourselves from drama, trying to protect ourselves from other people's pain. And so we think that the Christian life is don't have drama, don't feel pain. If you obey the commands of Christ, you'll somehow work your way above the riffraff of life and you won't have to deal with that stuff. So you can be 50, 55, 60, 70 years old and get to this place of utopia in your mind where everything's okay and you don't make a bunch of goofball mistakes. And sure, some of the commands of Christ revolve around not making goofball mistakes, but so many of the commands of Christ mean, yeah, as you find yourself out of your own pain and sorrow and misery that you cause for yourself, you jump back into other people's. By choice. You can't grow in Christ and not feel that tension and that desire. The Spirit of God will torment your soul to make you want to love and reach out. Man. Let me encourage you as we leave tonight. Go where you haven't gone. When Tara and I moved here eight, ten years ago, we lived just southeast of First Southern, a brand new housing, residential area. And it was nice. It was part of our ten-year plan. We lived there two years before we sold it and moved to Virginia. When we came back a few years ago, I immediately thought we could go there. Matter of fact, we lived in a townhome. There's not many townhomes over there, but we were the cheapest in the neighborhood. 
And the other townhome, the one that was attached to our house, was for sale, like $25,000 below what we had sold ours for years earlier. We would literally be living next door to our old selves. And I saw that and I told Tara, I was like, oh, there it is. We could literally just jump right back into our old life. But we said no. Because when we lived over there, and this isn't anyone else's fault, this was our fault. We lived the middle class, caged up, bubble-wrapped lifestyle that came with it. We chose that. We did that to ourselves. You can live over there and not do that, but we did that. And for us, we knew when we move back to the city, we're going to have to live in a different part of town, a a part of town that we're not even familiar with, a part of town that we don't really even necessarily want to live in. But we got to break out of that rut that we know we would fall back into. What is it for you? Maybe you need to change the places you drive. Maybe you need to take the long way around. Maybe you need to go to some neighborhoods that you're not used to. Maybe you need to ask questions to your friends, to your family, to to coworkers, and find out where's the brokenness in this city. And you need to sit in it a little bit and let your heart break for it. Because if you're already new in Christ and yet you're still not concerned for the city, then the way that you're going to connect those dots is empathy. And you've got to know where the brokenness is to know where to shine the light. And you need to pray and ask God. That's what we're talking about next week is what does kingdom prayer look like? You need to ask God to break your heart for the things that breaks his. He will break your heart. But there's time left. Make the most of this. I've said it a million times. I'll say it again. Your legacy is not what you leave behind here on earth. Your legacy is who's coming with you to heaven. The disciples made. The people you pour into spiritually. Because when it's all said and done, the spiritual stuff is the only thing that's going to matter. The rest of it down here is going to (laughs) burn. It's going to burn. Nobody talks about it much, but I um, I always wondered about the thousands of years between the fall in Genesis chapter 3 and Jesus coming back 2,000 years ago and what that must have felt like for God, knowing his people were broken, they were running from him, they were living in the sinfulness on earth, and he had the plan, and it was his son Jesus. Why didn't he send Jesus earlier? You ever think that? But it says in Romans that in the right time, in the right time, all the Old Testament law, all of it pointed the people to the fact that they needed him. He let them sit in that place where they knew after generation after generation that they are sinners and they can't fix this. They had the sacrificial system. They had the law. They had everything they would need. If they could do it on their own, they had all the tools, but they couldn't do it. And it was only then God sent his son, Jesus. In the right time, he took action. But I imagine as a father, his heart broke for us even before he sent his son. I know it did. That's what tonight is for you. 
You're in a place recognizing the brokenness out there, and you can sit in it recognizing there is a time for action. And I'm going to let my heart break, and I'm not going to protect my heart from breaking anymore. What am I protecting my heart for when it comes to the people in the city? And then you take action. The time is right. Let me pray for you. Father God, I pray for each one of us that you would do a work in us that continues. We trust and know that it is. And Lord, we know you tell us to guard our hearts because it's the wellspring of life. But we know when it comes to your people and making disciples, we need to have a wide open heart. So I pray, Father, that you would point us to places and people in this city. God, some that we're already reaching out to, others that we don't even know their name yet. But God, make us people who want to know other people, their pain, the depths of their hurt, so that we can bring the good news into that. Make us conduit for the gospel. Use our lives. God, if you want us to break out of whatever bubble we might be in, break us out of that bubble. Give us desire. Give us hope. Give us faith. And God, help us to rest in Jesus every step of the way. God, save this city. Use us to proclaim the message of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.